Okay, this is the voiceover for the opener of the voiceover radio show. This is take one. In a world where laughter was king. Uh, no in a world, buddy. What do you mean, no in a world? Um, it's a podcast. Oh, okay. In a land that... No in a land either. In a time. No, I don't think so. In a land before time. It's two guys talking about voiceovers. When everything you know is wrong. That's wrong. A girl. No. Two girls. Well, maybe Andrew, but come on. Now, no. more than Stop it. a renegade cop. A cop? A robot renegade cop. You're fired. You're fired. No, you're actually fired. I'm fired. Get out of the booth, Jack. No, I like it in here. There's no take two. There's no just a little more purple. Warts and all, you've downloaded the VO Radio Show. Yes, this is episode one of the VO Radio Show. My name's Andrew Peters, and over there is... I'd be Darren Robertson. You can call me Robbo, though. Okay, Robbo it is. Um, Now, we're um, putting this show together based on things you might like to hear about the voiceover industry. But we're not just focusing straight onto the voiceover industry. We're taking other people in from other areas of audio Mm. and... And that was really crap. I don't know what I'm talking about now. I'm waffling. <laughs> I think what you're trying to say, Andrew, is there's a little bit of cross-pollination. Is that right? Cross-pollination is the word I was looking mm. for. Or two words. I like big words. Um, so we're talking to, in this first series, we're talking to uh, some recording engineers, Richard Lush, um, mm. for old timers. You may remember he was the engineer for the Beatles. Yeah, looking forward to that one. Yeah, it's going to be great. There's also another audio engineer who worked with uh, everyone from the Pogues, Kirsty McColl, to Annie Lennox... Ricky Lee Jones, in fact, pretty well a whole bunch of cross-section of people. Um, his name is Chris Dickey. He was Steve Lillywhite's engineer. He's also mm-hmm. going to tell us a bit of uh, the goss from behind the window. Looking forward to goss, like goss. And uh, we do love goss. Plus, we've got uh, Joan Bogdan, who's a, a New York-based uh, voiceover talent and coach. She'll be uh, having a chat with us as well. Um, And we have, uh, in today's episode, in fact, we have a couple of creatives from advertising. And uh, they'll be giving us their perspective on what it's like in the advertising industry. One is Mike Beach, ex-Detroit. Mike, I won't give his age away, but let's just say he's uh, almost twice the age of our other guest, who will be talking with him, uh, Ian Lanovich, who is uh, from Detroit. Um, their perspective on the advertising industry you may find very interesting indeed. One, one question we must remember to ask is uh, how many beers can you drink and how many sandwiches can you eat in one recording session? Uh, depends if you're paying for it. <laughs> <laughs> that was always something I used to say about uh, recording studios. Mm. A lot of them get more work than the other one because they have better coffee and better food. That's sometimes the way. Yep. Sometimes the way. It, it's it always funny because you go to a recording studio to do a, a track and I mm. guarantee their busiest time of the day is somewhere between 12.30 and 2.30. Yeah. Free yeah, lunch. when everyone's coming for lunch. Yeah, free, free lunch. lunch. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've worked for a few of those in my time, don't worry. And that's the good thing about being an engineer, though, is um, free lunch. <laughs> yeah, but the worst thing about being the talent is you look through the window at everybody eating, eating. their free lunch. That's right. And you can't eat because, I'm sorry, mate, they make too much mouth noise in that. Yep. And, and we're not going to pay you. We're not going to pay right. you and give you food. You got the choice. <laughs> exactly. Do you want to eat or do you want to get paid? Indeed. So now talking about advertising, I've sort of been thinking about a few things about how advertising has changed. And I know we're going to touch mm. on a few of these subjects with uh, 
Ian and Mike later in the show. Yeah. But a couple of things that I thought were really interesting, and one was that the, the blame for the demise in advertising, if there is a demise in advertising, is the advent of TiVo, Replay TV, and even you go back even further to the video recorder where you can actually skip ads. What do you think? I, I totally agree with you. I think, uh, and, I, and I also think that a lot of the blame should also probably stand with, with the stations themselves, both radio and TV, because with the ad breaks have become so long now that we've just become numb to them. You know, where yeah. where a two-minute or a two-and-a-half-minute ad break, you'd probably go, okay, well, I'll sit through this because by the time I've watched a promo, I'm only being sold for two, two-and-a-half minutes. Whereas now, I, I sat and watched an ad break the other day in The Voice, I think it was like five minutes. Yeah. It's just craziness. Who's going to sit through that? Yeah, exactly. Unless they're really good creative, then you might get hooked in. Yeah. Yeah, I think creative helps. But if I've already stood up from the television and walked away to make a cup of coffee because I've got, I know I've got five minutes, no amount of great creative is going to sell me their message, is it? I, I don't know. I, I I find that quantity is killing us. I think the quality of the work being done out there hasn't changed. I, I honestly kind of get the feeling that we're just being bombarded with advertising and we've just become numb to it now. Is that because advertising has got cheaper, do you think? Yeah, I think it's become more affordable and there's also so many forms of it now. I mean, you can't sit down and watch YouTube without having to watch at least 10 seconds of an ad first, right? Yeah. You know, and there's so many different there's so many different portals for advertising to be thrown our way. Um, so, yeah, look, you know, as an audio engineer, I work on some great campaigns. I'm lucky enough to work, you know, with the top end of town and also having my own studio work with the low end of town as well. And I think the low end of town has certainly lifted its game and the high end of town is certainly still pumping out the great stuff they always have. There's some amazing creative minds out there working in the in the industry. And, I'm, and you come across them too, you know, yeah. on the other side of the glass. And you just think, you, you think sometimes to yourself, I wonder if this is all a, a wasted venture because is anyone really watching? Well, that's the problem. The more the the, the the pie is not really getting bigger, but the mm. slices are getting smaller. That's right. And what people actually want to pay is 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 getting smaller as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I think because because of competition from YouTube and you know online stuff. Yeah. The biggest concern, of course, that everybody is flagging is the race to the bottom. So hopefully mm. um, yes. that doesn't happen. <laughs> but I saw no. an interesting quote. This is from uh, a, a blog I was reading uh, earlier today, and it was from um, the head of a big digital agency who said. Uh, we don't do story. We facilitate the handshake by moving the cash register closer to the consumer. That's much more Ooh. economical and efficient than trying to create demand and desire. Nice. Someone's been thinking, writing a few notes over dinner. I think what he <laughs> meant to say was... together. Yeah, I think what he meant to say was, uh, we just go for retail instead of branding. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, uh, there's a lot of people out there who still stand by brand, but at the end of the day... You know, people move on price, don't they, these days, yeah. let's be honest. Well, there's the other the other thing as well, of course, is um, social media. So you've got mm. things like, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, so on and so forth. Now, all they really do is create traffic. Yep. So, you know, you've got all this um, space to advertise. Mm. So I'm mm. my question is, is Facebook and LinkedIn and all these different uh, social media outlets going to be the new platform for advertising? Well... You know, that seems to be the way that the consumers are moving, doesn't it? Certainly, you know, we're engaging ourselves in in, um, in social media more and more. Well, if you if you think about it, you don't watch TV on a train, no. uh, but you probably be what you know watching something on your iPhone or iPad. Yep. 
Yeah. Well, I think more importantly than that, I know people who who don't watch TV when they're away on holidays, but they take their iPad or their iPhone and they sit there on social media for an hour by the pool. Yeah. So you know, I think that's even more telling. Yeah. So. Well, if you think so, about yeah. you know, like if how much time you actually spend watching TV in an evening, mm. Mm. and then you look at how much time you spend looking at your iPhone or your tablet yeah. during the day yeah. or your computer. Yeah. Mm, I think the television's uh, probably uh, taking a smaller slice of your um, media pie. I think so. I, I think unless the unless the channels hit something that actually you know really engages people. Um, but as I said before, I still think we've become a bit cynical about advertising. You know, I still think that's the time that we 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 turn the volume down and we pick up our iPhone and we go through we go to Facebook while the ads are on, or we get up and go and make a cup of tea, or yeah. you know, whatever. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's certainly not showing revenue wise that it's moving that way. But you've got to think that sooner or later it will be. Mm. Well, we'll find out more from the guys who are the experts uh, in the show shortly with uh, mm. our guests today, Mike Beach and Ian Lanovich. In a world. In a world where only the best voice will do. Realtimecasting.com. But now, you've been uh, doing a bit of techie stuff as well. What, what have you discovered? Oh, look, I was having a bit of a play around with my, uh, with my voice channel. Uh, a couple of weeks ago and, and I've just discovered a bit of a trick that worked for me and I thought I might pass it on for uh, for our techie friends out there, our engineers friends out there. What I did was in my in my voice bus, because I, vo- I bus all my voice channels into one bus and then EQ and compress there, rather than setting up an EQ where I cut frequencies and boost frequencies, I actually set up an EQ first and all I did was cut. So the roll off at 50 hertz down, which everybody does, I'm sure, uh, was done there. And then uh, with the voice I was working with, I think I was cutting around 250 hertz and, and a little more up the top, it was a bit S-y, so uh, some of the higher frequencies I was cutting there. And then I compressed reasonably heavily. And then I put another EQ in and all I did in that EQ was boost. So the, the frequencies that I wanted to boost, I touched in that EQ and then just a little more compression after that. Now, it sounds a long way around, but the thing I found, and I'm interested in feedback from any of our listeners who are engineers or, or voiceover artists out there who are, who are doing their own engineering, give it a go and, and let me know what you think. I found that I had to use less EQ, so the re- end result was something that sounded less processed. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd be interested to, uh, to see uh, if anyone else out there gets the same results. Mm, that's really interesting, because I saw something a bit similar um, that a guy was talking about recording records and well, doing a mix and uh, not quite the same but he was saying that when he does a mix he doesn't mix in stereo he mixes in mono and then we'll reference back to stereo to see how it's sounding but everything he does in the mix it's always done in mono yeah well it's interesting that he mixes in mono I check in mono I certainly do I certainly check my mix in mono before I send it out um, and then I have two lots of reference speakers here in the voodoo studios that I use um I got a mate who's uh, who's the uh, audio engineer at one of the big agencies in town, and uh, he only mixes in mono, and he only mixes through little computer speakers. He does have some big Genelecs in the room, but when he's when he's actually doing his mixing, he uh, he mixes on the little computer speakers and uses his big speakers as his reference. So um, so that's interesting too. Yeah, well, I, there's one studio that I work in, and they do well, the one engineer who owns the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, he only works using his old Oratones. Yeah, right. Everything through the Oratone. That's how he records, and that, that's how he mixes. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think you know we were talking a minute ago about the digital age. You know, you've got to you've got to think when you're mixing these days that you know a lot of your stuff 
even if you are mixing for TV, they're going to turn it around and put it onto YouTube and all these other places. So somewhere along the way, it is going to end up in the digital environment. And, you know, there's the old check is... You know, is still as valid as it was back in the days of AM radio. You know, you check it in mono and check it on crappy speakers and make sure that it kicks just as much as it does on the yeah. big ones. Well, in our future interviews coming up in the next few weeks, um, there's a couple of good stories. One from uh, Chris Dickey about orotones, how they used orotones when they were recording the Thompson Twins, ah. uh, which is kind of unique. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the Thompson Twins were kind of unique amongst themselves, weren't they? Yeah, well, when you hear this, you kind of go, oh, so that's how they got that drum sound. Right, okay. And uh, now friend from the Beatles, um, Richard Lush, um, he's got plenty to say about uh, the way things are recorded these days. Mm, I'm sure. Yes. He was in the days where it was like straight down Four the tape, track. play live. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. What do you mean you can't sing? Well, you can't make a record. Get out. <laughs> yeah. Over, overdubbing a four track. That'd be fun. Yeah. Well, there's some good stories in there. But anyway, that coming up in weeks to come. But uh, today's interview is with, as I mentioned before, uh, Mike Beach. And Ian Lanovich. We should get into it. See what they have to say about advertising. The VO Radio Show is produced in the studios of Voodoo Sound. Radio. TV. This week's guests, we have two, a double header, and they both come from similar backgrounds, in fact, similar part of the world, and have a little bit in common with uh, an advertising agency, which we'll touch on soon. But uh, one who left Detroit back in the 70s and uh, has now become a neighbour of mine is Mike Beach, who's a creative writer for uh, advertising agencies and freelance. And on the line from uh, Detroit is a man who's ex-Camberley world. Um, he's uh, been an advocate of the campaign for Detroit, the rebirth of Detroit, which is how we discovered him in the first place. His name is Ian Lanovich. Welcome. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you. Now, one question I wanted to ask you both, and I don't know who wants to put their hand up first, but uh, this is probably a, a big one. It's the three influences, the major influences that have tailored you or your career or whatever. It doesn't have to be a person. It, it was actually a guy uh, uh, at Campbell Ebold, a guy by the name of Mike Sari, who happened to be my brother-in-law. I wasn't working at Campbell Ebold. I, I just uh, left the United States Army and I was talking to him about going into into advertising. And he gave me some encouragement along those lines. But uh, during the course of the conversation, he gave me three words. He said, professionals have reasons. And that has been sort of a guiding mantra for me. And it's also, I think, been a curse in that... Um, when a, an account executive or a client has come to me with an, an opinion about uh, something, I'll ask them why. And it's amazing how few times I get a cogent answer. Sometimes it just pisses people off. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So that's, that's influence number one. That's so number I'll one. I'll stop. Okay. What, what, what's one for you, Ian? Well, I remember when I was, uh, I think it was maybe about seven or eight years old, I went on a family trip. And, uh, you know, my parents were split up when I was about three years old. So, uh, I typically, when I traveled, I went with like my aunts and uncles and my cousins and stuff. And we went to Hollywood and went to Universal Studios. And I remember E.T. had just come out at the time. Mm. Uh, so there was kind of an exhibit where you could ride the E.T. bike. So I, you know, immediately wanted to ride the bike. And then the next day we went to a game show, a live taping of a game show. And they asked audience members if anybody had a joke that they wanted to tell on stage for a contest. And here I am, eight years old, and I, you know, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I went on stage, I told the joke, I made the audience laugh. And 
that trip was kind of influential, whereas it let me know that I wanted to uh, be on some sort of a stage at some point in time. And, you know, that ended up leading to me playing in various bands. So I was more of a front man. You know, one of my favorite things is really just, uh, you know, new business pitches and having that floor and, you know, trying to sell ideas. And um, I get the same butterflies when I walk into a big presentation as I do when I, uh, you know, walk on the stage for a gig or things like that. Okay, what's your number two, Mike? Well, whether it's number one or number two, (laughs) uh, uh, when I was eight years old, living in Japan, Japan. My my dad uh, was in the U.S. Air Force. Um, there was no TV, so we um, we sat around and watched the radio and um, listened to shows like the The Lone Ranger and The Shadow and Inner Sanctum and Gangbusters and comedy shows and things like that. Anyway, it was just loving the imagination of it and losing myself in it when I was eight years old. Ian, have you got another story for us? Yeah, I do. Um, I grew up middle class, you know, uh, blue collar parents. Um, my dad was a uh, factory worker, a skilled tradesman, they call it. Uh, most of my friends' parents worked, you know, either for, you know, what we call the big three. They were either Chrysler employees or they were Ford employees or General Motors employees, uh, primarily working in the plants. And I used to just pick up on little things, you know, they would talk about things known as a pension, you know, which is uh, basically after you've um, served your 30 years on the job, you know, you are rewarded with a certain pay for the rest of your life. And I never really seen, um, you know, my, uh, you know, my dad or my uncles or, you know, my friend's parents or, you know, really passionate about what it was that they were working on. It was more or less they were passionate about what they were owed at the end of their career. I had an opportunity to be a electrician for Chrysler and I went in and took the apprenticeship testing and, uh, you know, I passed the tests and I, I got a letter in the mail that said, uh, you know, you've passed the test, you're going to be an uh, electrician apprentice and you'll be assigned, you'll, you'll receive a call in the next couple of weeks assigning you with your uh, job placement. And my family was so excited. You know, everybody I knew was so excited for me. Like you're actually going to amount to something. You're going to be doing something. <laughs> yeah. And your next 30 years are, are, are paved. You know, now all you have to do is get married and have kids. And um, I got that call from Chrysler and I, I kind of panicked on the phone and I, I lied to them. I told them that I was taking summer classes and I um, wasn't going to be able to um, take the job yet until school was over. And I remember like the call like it happened yesterday. The lady on the other end said, uh, you know, if you refuse this job now, you know, there will not be another call when your college is over. And, uh, you know, there's people that would kill for this opportunity. And I just said, well, you know, I don't know what to tell you. I need to, you know, go to my classes. And I hung up the phone with them and basically um, didn't really know how to react. I, I don't think I told anybody in my family for about two or three years until after I had, you know, landed another full time position and my career was starting to get underway. Um, but I remember just sitting there saying, wow, I just turned down Chrysler and I turned down this 30 year path and now I'm kind of on my own and I have to figure out what I'm going to do. I don't, I don't know if it was really a kick in the butt, but it, um, it it made things really clear for me that, you know, I was kind of on my own now. If I can butt in, there's some parallels. Um, when I left the army post Vietnam, I had no idea what the hell I was going to do. And some people said, well, maybe you should get into advertising. But in the, and I was uh, getting knocked back after, you know, interview by interview because basically I'd never had a job before. Uh, 
And in the meantime, I was looking around at other jobs, and I got offered a job. This was exciting, selling workers' compensation insurance. And I was I was given that job, and the day before, I was actually scheduled to go to Chicago to start training and working in that, a job which would have killed me. I went into Compton Advertising, uh, showed them some stuff that, that I'd done, and they said, what do you know about car advertising anyway? And I said, I don't know anything more about cars, but I could probably take a Jeep apart and put it back together again because that's what I did in, in the Army. I ran a motor pool in Vietnam, and that's what, that's what they do when you've got a master's degree in English. They put you in charge of the motor pool. <laughs> they said, look behind you, and there is this big Jeep logo, and they said, that's the only account we service out of this agency. Next day, I was working for them. You could, you could put that as my third yeah, yeah, yeah. total coincidence as my other influence, major influence. Yeah, Just, but there was also, you've told me the story before, and there was also the line about being a short order chef. Oh, yeah, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, my, my next interview was with the guy from uh, New York, and he saw in my, my resume, <laughs> such as it was, that I had short order cook at the Big Boy Restaurant in Petoskey, Michigan. And um, he said, you know, you're the only guy I've ever talked to that's crazy enough to put short order cook on his resume. But, but, but that, uh, that proves you can do a lot of stuff at the same time without panicking. And that's what you got to do in advertising. So, yeah. You know, just to play off that, you know, um, I, I've never been into cars. You know, I'm probably one mm. of the few Detroiters that never really has been into, into cars. But and when I started at Campbell Ewald in 2000, um, the, I would say Chevy Chevrolet was made up probably about seventy percent yeah, of you know the, sure. the like uh, it, you know like the, the like revenue it always did mm. right and over the years you know it started to balance a little bit more fifty fifty but uh, you either worked on Chevy or you didn't work on Chevy this is kind of the way that the agency was structured I had been there for eight years before I actually worked on Chevrolet. And I liked working on non-Chevy. I had a you know a variety mm. of different accounts: the United States Navy. I worked on mm. uh, Carhartt clothing. I worked on OnStar, which is automotive related, but it's uh, it's not directly vehicles. And when I finally went on to Chevrolet, our CEO basically said, "Okay, you know your time is done. You're going to have to work on our largest account if you're going to if I'm going to continue to throw you in uh, leadership positions." And I remember uh, being freaked out because I seen a lot of people be very excited when they got their opportunity to work on that account. But then when it was all over, I seen their heads down and they weren't very happy anymore. And it almost felt like it became the career crusher. So I, uh, I was afraid to work on automotive, you know, for many years. And I remember sitting in my CEO's office and telling him, you know, I don't really want to work on this account. And he's like, well, you don't really have a choice. I'm going to put you on this account. So, um, so automotive has always been something like I grew up with it. You know, I understand it. I um, I understand it from a marketing and advertising space uh, really well, but I lack the passion for the actual vehicle. But I drive a Jeep, and I love Jeeps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a little like you in that regard in terms of doing advertising for cars. I think it's one of the few products that actually sort of defines a person, especially if you're a guy. It's almost like the, the modern equivalent, like right now, is uh, you're either an Android person or you're an iOS person. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. You know, it kind of defines you. It defines the types of apps you use. It defines, you know, there's, a, there's typically a reason why you chose one or the over the other. My third is kind of interesting one, I would say, is the police. <laughs> the police. Okay. Shortly after I turned down the, the Chrysler uh, job, 
Um, I had uh, sold a joint to an undercover at a uh, at a rock concert, <laughs> and uh, I remember the uh, you know the police officer gave me a piece of paper with a phone number on it. He wanted me to call him within the next uh, five days and start to give him leads as to where you can get you know stuff. <laughs> I walked out of there. I scalped a ticket, changed, uh, put on a hat, threw on a different T-shirt, and went into the concert. Over the next five days, I remember sitting there saying, you know, if that was a real police officer, they would have gave me more than a phone number and a piece of paper. So I did nothing about it. And about six months later, I had got pulled over for uh, speeding. And uh, they told me that there was a warrant out for my arrest. I was like, whoa, you know, really? And I got locked up and uh, I wasn't a minor. I wasn't under 18, but I was under 21 at the time. So, um, you know, I had to go through some probation and then the offense was for the most part cleared off my record. But when that happened, it was kind of it was a huge wake up call. My job at the time was I was working in a small factory. I was basically doing exactly what I didn't want to do. I didn't really know what my next steps were. And I was in the car and I heard on the radio a computer job fair that was happening at a nearby city. So I told work I had a, you know, I was going to be in late that day and I put my suit on and I got a resume put together and I went to the computer job fair and I spoke to every single company that was there and there was over 50 companies. About a week later, I got a call back uh, from a technology company known as Compuware who was willing to take a risk on a guy who hadn't graduated college but seemed to know a thing or two about computers. And I got an entry-level position placed in that Ford Motor Company. And that actually ended up being my, my foot in the door to what ended up becoming my career. You know, I, I, I started at Ford Motor doing some web things, uh, you know, early internet stuff. And CompuWare at the time wanted uh, to actually put me through a... Um, their boot camp course for to become a developer. But since I didn't have my degree yet, CompuWare wasn't able to actually put me through the course. Um, a friend of mine started working at Campbell Ewald in advertising. There was a job opening for a digital producer, you know, producing websites and things like that at the time, CD-ROMs. And I, uh, I went in, I interviewed, I, I got the job. And uh, 14 years later, I was still working there. So it, uh, saying no to Chrysler when they called, getting arrested shortly after, you know, <laughs> yeah. it, it really just kind of, uh, you know, set my path in motion. And I needed to, I knew that I needed to start making decisions and I had to basically trust my skills to this day. One of my best skills is problem solving, which is in a lot of cases, all advertising mm -hmm. is, you know, just trying to figure out what the problem is and how to actually go about solving it and how it's going to reach the, you know, the largest audience. When you look back, what was the the one major thing in advertising? Well, when I got into it, I, I came in on the digital side. And at the at that point in time, digital was very, uh, it was like the, um, I don't know if you use this term in Australia, but the black sheep of the family. Yeah. Um, people knew they needed it, but they didn't know what to do with it. And it wasn't very difficult to get a job. If you knew Photoshop, you were hired. Or if you knew <laughs> HTML, you were hired. Yeah. And there was really no conceptual side to digital back then. It was purely production. You know, a client needed a website. You did a website. You didn't create concepts for your website. You didn't think about different approaches. You just kind of did it. And there wasn't a lot of involvement from the um, you know brand creative directors at the time. They just you know didn't really pay attention to what was going on. So when I look back at the work that I did in the first five years of my career, most of it was probably pure crap. But there, luckily for me, there was some shiny objects in there that paved my way for my career. And, you know, right when I landed uh, the job, my client was OnStar. And uh, the spokesperson for OnStar at the time was Batman. 
And it was basically, what's the coolest car in the world? It's the Batmobile. Well, what can make the Batmobile even cooler? Adding OnStar. So I got thrown in a more of a conceptual side, um, coming up with ideas with DC Comics and starting to do some early TV to web integration, uh, doing uh, you know interactive comic books and putting them online, uh, things like that. Kiosks at events that you know integrated with Batman and our overall campaigns. So from that point in time, while most of my peers were just worried about executing, I was more worried about trying to do more fun stuff. And I would typically always have a side project. So you would do the things the clients were asking you to do, but you would try to figure out something they weren't asking for, put together some concepts, put together a prototype or, you know, assemble a team that was right for, you know, that idea. And that became, you know, the way I just worked was, uh, you know, just basically trying to come up with something on the side and then bring it to the client's attention when it made sense or when it was ready and then sell it. You know, and when I look at most of the things that I, you know, share on my portfolio today or, you know, most of the assignments I'm most proud of, I can't think of a single one that was actually asked for. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But see, the digital platform was what you grew up in, but Mike, your platform was completely different. Well, the the big thing everybody wanted to do was TV. I mean, that's that was it. You normally didn't get much of a chance to touch it if you were, you know, a junior starting out. Did a lot of print stuff, uh, did an awful lot of collateral before I did national print ads and was allowed to do radio and, you know, work with musicians and and stuff like that. Where do you see advertising going? I don't think it really changes much. I see too many people thinking the execution is the idea. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like the idea is doing a website. The idea is doing an app. The idea yeah. is doing some cool, you know, augmented reality thing or whatever, you know, um, is the shiny, you know, one of the shiny objects of the time. Or right now, experiential marketing yeah. is huge, you know, because there's so many more things you could do now, you know, with like connecting with phones and tablets and things like that. But I think it's just, it, it still comes back to a very simple thing, which is just storytelling. And you have to come up with the idea for the story that makes sense and then just figure out out what are the um, the right ways to play it out you know so how do you uh, how do you tell a story through a 15 second radio ad on Pandora you know you don't you tease the story right you know and you try to get somebody yeah. you know into the story or you just get very blatant and you just tell them what you're selling <laughs> you know mm. so I basically see advertising in two camps right now there's there's the in market and the out of market you know which hasn't really changed you know you know back in the day you'd say there was retail work and then there was brand work and um, it's still the same there's just a ton more retail options now with mobile advertising you know that's that's the funniest thing when i i sit in a meeting and you know they'll come in and say okay you know for this assignment the client really wants digital we need some big digital thinking well nine times out of ten what they're asking for is banner ads you know it's like well the budget you know the media buy is really just banner ads odds are they don't have any budget set aside to go create content or create an app or create some engaging experience or a website it's just banner ads and it's very difficult to um tell a story, you know, through a banner ad. But but that's the hard thing when you think about like integrated marketing and stuff like that. It's it's where do you, you know, where do you draw the line? Where are you okay with, you know, forcing something into the ad, you know, and where are you okay with not forcing something into the ad, you know? Like, I don't know how many times I've been in arguments about, you know, do we have to force the tagline into this, you know, tiny execution or mobile ad? And it's like, no, it's oh, not that argument. the sale. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, right? you know, like maybe back in the day you could be an expert in TV or you can mm. be an expert in radio 
writing 60s or 30s or you can be an expert in, uh, you know, print or, you know, but now there's just there's way too many options for you to be an expert. So ultimately, you either have to be an expert at a certain execution format or variety of execution types, or you have to be an expert on the conceptual side where you leave it to other people or you trust other partners to figure out the best way to bring it to life. Can, can I say, though, that one thing should be a constant in that you should be an expert in knowing what the hell your customer cares about and wants. Oh, yeah. And I think too many people forget that because they go, they go straight to the, to the, oh, we need to do digital option or we need to do X, X medium over Y medium rather than mm-hmm. let's talk about the bloody customer and what they use and what they want and what they care about. Right. You really can't connect the word you use with, with people people that are buying stuff or ideas unless you have a a damn good idea about who you're talking to. It's also interesting with new media. It's just another platform. It's like a radio ad or a TV ad. I agree with you 100% that basically video is video and, you know, um, audio is audio and where it presents itself, you know, um, that's kind of where it gets complicated um, and it shouldn't be. No, I was just going to say one of the things that I've noticed a lot, of course, and a lot of people have, is when you look at YouTube videos and you get an ad that comes in before and they yep. give you the option to skip, mm. which usually is about five or six seconds before you can skip the ad. Nine times out of ten, the ad hasn't even indicated what it is within six seconds. So, you know, to me, if you're going to put that ad on in that environment, surely you would think about how you can get some kind of hook Mm. in that first six seconds to make people either hang there or at least get a message. Yeah, you'd be surprised by how few people think that way. You know, um, I mean, over the years, I've presented a lot of uh, concepts that were like the five-second ad, you know, like not necessarily literally a five-second ad, but, but, you know, within those first five seconds, trying to make sure that you kind of got a message across so that there's at least a takeaway before Mm -hmm. they skip or try to basically um, raise a ton of excitement in those first five seconds that you at least want to watch it a few seconds longer. Um, Most clients and most creative teams just don't think that way and they don't look at the medium, you know, and try to figure out the right execution style for that medium. They basically write for TV and then expect it to just work across, you know, everything else. No change there, really. No. Obviously, everything's escalating in the technology area. What new platforms do you envisage in the next five years, for instance? You know, it's it's really hard to predict, you know. Um, You know, I'm excited with where drones are going, you know, but um, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but I know we have a lot of federal regulations prohibiting production companies to utilize drones. But I like where they're going, not just for filming, but, uh, you know, like Amazon dropping off, you know, products at your doorstep, you know, by a drone, you know, things like that are just are really just interesting and cool. And how do do you then turn that into a message? You know, so when people are seeing that drone in the sky, is there a way to kind of run ads through that? You know, or when it drops off on your doorstep, is that a new medium? (laughs) You know, is that a new piece of collateral it drops off to as an ad? I like the the Meerkat and the Periscope. I've been watching that. you know, I don't think it's really there yet, but just the live video streaming, there's something to it, you know, and being able to just go live at any point in time. I could see that changing, you know, the way that journalism is done, 
you know, breaking news just is, is visual now as opposed to just text, you know, and, uh, and you don't have to wait, um, till the camera crew arrives, you know, somebody can go mm-hmm. live instantly, you know, yeah. once they see the story present itself. So, um, it's just organizing all of that into a, into a easy way for you to, you know, know it's happening or know it's out there or, you know, that it's relevant to you. That's yeah. the difficult part. The stuff about drones and, and, and getting to be live everywhere right now, right there. It also, it also scares me a lot. Because you're not only bringing a message, but you're you're seeing too much. It seems to me you're yeah. being seen, which uh, which spooks me a lot. Yeah, um, I'll just let that out there. Very scary. Uh, now, a question that's probably closer to um, our audience is about. The voice, is it still as important as it was or is it becoming less important? Uh, I don't think it becomes less important uh, important at all. I think the, the same um, opportunities that have always been there for it are still there. I think it still, you know, is a huge controller for creating a tone of voice, mm-hmm. um, you know, and a feeling and an emotion. I think it just feels like it. Gets, there's so many other things now that are like um, almost automated you know, like ads, you know, programmatic ads, you know, things like that, that it just gets flooded, you know, and it feels like there's all these new things coming out and there's just not a place for, you know, the voice, which is true. If you're talking about, you know, static mobile ads or um, static, you know, web ads, things like that, there, there really isn't a place for the voice, but the voice is still there, you know, any video, you're creating more video now than you've ever created. So there's more opportunities for that voice to be, um, you know, heard. Yeah, it, it, it seems to me that the most effective way to sell something is still one person to one person. When I hear a voiceover, I, I imagine what that person looks like and what, what sort of person that man or woman is or kid. To me, it's, it's one of the things that can really impart personality to a product. And I reckon that's still huge in, in selling and convincing and persuading. If there's one thing in your career that you miss, what would it be? Mike. <laughs> there's a lot of things that I look back at in my life and say, God, I wish I'd done that differently. But they don't, <laughs> they don't relate to advertising. They might relate to women. <laughs> so I'll let, I'll let that go. <laughs> I'll think about that one for a while. Have you, have you got any thoughts on that one, Ian? Yeah, I, I got kind of two angles on it. You know, there's something that I feel like I missed an opportunity, and then there's uh, something that I actually miss, you know, mm. about my career. As far as missing an opportunity, uh, I lack the ability to shut off. It doesn't matter if I'm in the office, if I'm at home, if I'm working out or wherever I'm at, my brain just keeps moving, you know, and if, you know, if there's an idea, if there's a thought for whatever, I don't really shut off, you know, and, uh, looking back, there's a lot of opportunities where I was too busy thinking about something that really didn't matter, um, that I wish I could have just shut that off so that I could have been more present. And there's a lot of, like my wife says it to me all the time, like, you know, you're there, but you're not really there. You know, it's like, you could tell like your, your brain is somewhere else, but we're all here, you know? And, uh, so that would be you know, something I, I feel like I've missed that opportunity because that time just goes by and, you know, you can't really get it back. All I could do is continue to try to work on that going forward. Um, and then as far as what I miss, you know, I miss, you know, being one of the guys, you know, um, I felt like there was a, uh, sorry, there's a car starting next to me. So your wife leaving you, I think, with the kids. <laughs> no, no, hopefully not. Um, 
I remember when I was an associate creative director, I felt like I had, uh, you know, we had about a team of, um, you know, seven and then eventually a team of 12 that I really felt like we were a team. Everybody had each other's backs. You know, I remember we had a rule in the team that you wouldn't walk into the meeting without the rest of the team with you. So we carried ourselves as a group. We carried ourselves as a team. We, we, we stood behind each other's concepts and each other's decisions and we backed each other up in, you know, whatever situation, you know. And there was a point where I remember like, you know, I started to get into senior leadership and I just realized that I wasn't part of all the conversations anymore. You know, I was, uh, I was part of some of the conversations, but, um, people weren't as truthful with me, you know, anymore as they would be with their, you know, their peers and their other coworkers and colleagues. You know, I miss that. I miss having that team and, you know, being in a larger agency, uh, like Campbell Ewald, you know, it's too easy to get caught up into the politics. Whereas I, I kind of wish, you know, at times that I was just part of, you know, like a 20 person small shop and, we could just kind of run like a family. I hear you on that one. I've been freelancing now for, God, 20 years. So occasionally I'll, I'll get into an agency and spend uh, more than six months or maybe a couple of years with these people or uh, be part of an in-house team with a direct client. And after a couple of months, I find myself bonding and being part of that team. And then when it's time to leave... I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm losing friends. I'm losing mm-hmm. people I care about in causes that I care about. And, and it, it hits me emotionally. In terms of my career, being part of a bunch of people that are trying to move something from point A to point B and actually care about it, yeah, I miss that. Because when you're freelancing, you do a job put it over and you lose it. You say goodbye to it and it says goodbye to you. That is probably uh, the future of all of our industries is that we will become more and more solitary because of technology allowing us to work remotely. So the whole whole thing is changing and I just don't know whether it's a healthy thing. It's a lonely thing. Can yeah. be. Yeah. Um, and that's not healthy. And it it's probably, even though... It, in sort of time motion studies, it would be thought of as, as efficient. I reckon a lot of your aha moments come from just talking with people and hearing things, things by accident, which trigger certain other things. And you don't get that from sitting in your office, gazing out at your, your backyard. No. Well... That was a bit of a down note to end with. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, I think it's... Uh, Let's all go get But I'd take issue with the fact that uh, you, bec- you have to become more solitary. I think there, there may be just a different form of a family and team that hopefully could be enabled by technology. You know, I have, uh, I have three kids. I have a 14-year-old, a five-year-old, and a three-year-old. So they've all, for the most part, grown up through technology mm. and social networks mm. and being connected. And there's a couple things with my 14-year-old that I realized over the last few years that were interesting. Uh, one was um, she had her first boyfriend about a year and a half ago, and they would study together, but not physically. I'd walk up to her room to go talk to her, and she would have her iPad sitting on her bed, and she would be uh, working on her homework and if you looked at her iPad, she was FaceTiming with her uh, her boyfriend who was sitting on his bed with his homework. 
right? So they weren't actually mm-hmm. there, but they were kind of there. <clears throat> um, and then the other thing was, um, I remember being in uh, elementary school and I had to um, go to another school. And I remember when you went to a different school, you basically lost your friends. You know, that was for the most part kind of the end of your friendship. Or if somebody moved, that was that was the end of it. That's not how it is anymore. You know, I see. Um, you know, my my daughter is still uh, like best friends with a person from kindergarten, from first grade. She had a friend of hers last year move um, to another part of the country, and um, they still connect. You know, through video chat and you know FaceTime. You know, on a daily basis. So they don't. They've realized that they don't have to be part of the same school or part, at the same place or part of the same company or things like that to maintain that relationship. You know, so I think for us, because we didn't grow up that way, it's almost weird. It's different. It's strange. Um, it, it takes some getting used to. But for the kids that are kind of growing up with that as just the way it is, they have the ability to stay connected with anybody anywhere at any time and build really strong, meaningful relationships. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've actually reconnected after, you know, decades of not even thinking about people. Uh, with old high school friends and old college friends. And uh, I know I'll get an email or something on Facebook today from somebody that I haven't physically seen for maybe 30 or 40 years. Maybe that's the upside of technology. Mm. Well, that was a lovely chat. Thank you, Ian Lovich, (laughs) from your... Where's the coffee? Where's the coffee? (laughs) You promised me coffee. Yeah, sorry about that. (laughs) The the cafe's closed at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. You've downloaded the VO Radio Show. Well, there you go. That's our first interview on the first VO Radio Show. Our special guests uh, this week were Mike Beach and Ian Lanovich. We've broken our cherry. We have indeed. It was good. <laughs> I, I find that quite insightful, finding out how the people on the other side of the glass think and uh, how they perceive the future. Yeah, absolutely. I thought the stuff about drones in the interview was very interesting, so let's see how that plays out. Mm, absolutely. That's, that's right. Who knows? Something completely different. But talk yes. about different, we're going to go on to the other side of the glass next week mm. and talk with one of the five guys in a limo. They were the five <laughs> trailer guys, and one of them was Nick Tate. And Nick's story is really interesting. Yeah, and, and you know, it's got to be a good bloke because he's an Aussie, right? Correct. Yeah, exactly. But no one knows that when he's reading a trailer. No, I, it would actually be. I would actually be interested to to uh, to see how many people actually realised Nick was an Aussie. Well, as you'll find out in the interview, I think uh, one of his clients was so annoyed when he turned up with an Australian accent, they she fired him. Oh, really? But uh, yeah. Goodness me! Uh, we'll hear all about that next week on the VO Radio mm. Show. That's we'll right. be back with uh, Nick Tate. Absolutely. See you then. Be good. The VO Radio Show is produced in the studios of Voodoo Sound. To polish your next audio production, check us out at voodoo-sound.com. Find professional voices simply all in one place. Realtimecasting.com, including me. And don't forget to catch next week's show because we've got this. One-fifth of the five guys in a limo, Nick Tate.